I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, part two of a conversation with historian Harold Holzer on his book, The Presidents Versus the Press, where he looks at the often contentious relationship between the media and our chief executives. This episode deals with President Kennedy and the early television age through President Trump and the arrival of social media. Harold Holzer, this is our second hour of conversation about your new book, The Presidents Versus the Press. And while I invite people to find the first hour on our website, for those who haven't seen it, what's the thesis of your new book? The thesis is that uh, um, we may believe we're living through the most uh, chaotic and unpleasant and confrontational era ever between a president and the media. But in fact, it's a long a tradition in American government and American media history that presidents and the press do not share the same interests and have been at war, in a sense, uh, ever since George Washington. From the time you started this project, was it always versus the press? Why'd you ask? Um, no. Uh, originally, it was the presidents and the press. Um, and uh, in my research about President Kennedy, I found that he gave a very defensive speech in 1961 to the American Publishers Association uh, in New York City. And uh, during the speech, he said, I wanted to call this speech the president's versus the press, because you are not always living up to your responsibility to protect American interests. And I had to be talked down, so I will call it the president's and the press. Well, I liked his first version better. He put it all out on the line. Um, and Kennedy, I know we'll discuss him later, but he is the one who said our interests and theirs are incompatible. Is that why he also earned the photo on your cover? Well, I just, I went back and forth on that, as did my my wonderful editor and team at uh, E.P. Dutton, and uh, there was a great shot of Lyndon Johnson as well, looking sour, but the Kennedy one, which had photographers and, um, and, and newsmen writing in steno pads, appealed to me. Plus, I must admit that I personally have a kind of a soft spot for JFK. Uh, I was 11 years old when he was elected, and his vigor, as he himself would put it, uh, is what really interested me in politics um, when I was a kid. So uh, there's a little bit of payback time. It's clear from your index and your notes that you did extensive research for this book. It was interesting to me that one name kept popping up again and again in your chapters, and that is a longtime White House correspondent, Helen Thomas. She had, I think I counted, 34 citations in the book. Who is she for people that don't know the name, and why was she so uh, important in your storytelling? I picked a few people who uh, lasted for several presidents and could look ahead and back, people like uh, Hedley Donovan and Merriman Smith and Mae Craig, another groundbreaking woman reporter who was known for her cute questions uh, that often triggered laughter uh, when President Kennedy responded to them on television news conferences. She started out uh, in the Roosevelt era and and faced pretty sexist comments and teasing uh, but fought for her place uh, and, and helped establish the right of women to be at presidential press conferences. Um, 
So Helen Thomas was the UPI correspondent who was sent uh, to cover uh, the birth of the Kennedy's son in 1960 and uh, uh, covered Mrs. Kennedy and then earned her way into the White House beat. Well, she lasted, as we know, through the Obama administration. She was 90 years old, being helped up the stairs from the press room to the briefing, to the uh, East Room for press conferences and still and still reporting. And she was feisty and she wrote some very funny and revealing books about her experiences. And uh, those of us who have been watching press conferences for a long time uh, know her as the woman who always got the first question because she was in the front row as the senior reporter and got to say, thank you, Mr. President, during uh, to end the press conferences during those days of structured briefings, formal briefings. I will say, and I do say in the book, that she asked very, very tough questions. Uh, she was the woman that presidents loved to hate. A cab driver once picked her up and said, aren't you the woman presidents love to hate? But she kept asking those ferocious questions. She undid herself at, at 90 by giving an answer to someone on the White House lawn about uh, the, the the Middle East. Uh, she was of... of uh, um, Arabic heritage uh, herself, something that didn't become known until late in her career. And she basically said to this father who had come for a Jewish history day to the White House, uh, she said uh, the, the Israelis should leave Palestine and go back where they came from, to Germany or Poland. And she, by then, it wasn't working for the UPI. She was a Hearst columnist, but that was the end for her. But she lasted a long time. We're going to dive into presidents, and uh, we're going to start this conversation with FDR, about whom you write, few presidents were more gifted and better prepared in the art of PR. How did that play out? Well, he had been a governor um, of New York for two two-year terms and mastered the art of the press conference and the radio address as governor. And um, he then, uh, on election night, in the absence of a victory speech in 1932 in the absence of a concession from Herbert Hoover, and this was not a close election, uh, was wheeled into the second floor parlor of his New York City home, where I should state very proudly that I now work. Uh, It's now the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College in Manhattan. But then in 1932, it was the Roosevelt's family home. And he gave an address to the people in front of the fireplace. It was, in essence, the first of a series of brilliant, a little more than two dozen speeches that he gave, not speeches, but conversations he held with the American people during the Depression and during World War II that revolutionized presidential communications. The big issue with him was the press's willingness to hide his disability. How does that look to us in the rearview mirror? It looks uh, like an abrogation of responsibility. Uh, it shouldn't have made a difference. He was certainly capable of doing a job, uh, the job for 12 years and a month. Uh, so his, his inability to walk did not hamper his mind or his heart, although it did, of course, he did suffer from heart disease literally at the end. Um, but there was, at the beginning, a gentleman's agreement between photographers 
and the president-elect and then the president. Uh, no formal rule, but they said, you know, he's just a nice guy. He's trying to help us, trying to help the country. Why should we add to his burdens? Uh, so there was a news blackout, or at least a photography blackout. I must say Roosevelt aggressively pursued the blackout. He got a magazine to do, uh, Liberty Magazine, I believe, to do a story about his health. It, it sort of reminds us of what Donald Trump did when he produced his doctor's alleged record that he was the healthiest patient he'd ever uh, treated. Roosevelt got doctors to go over his medical condition and say he was healthy as a horse, with no mention of his enduring paralysis from the polio he suffered in, in 1921. So what, what it began as a gentleman's agreement and a little bit of nudging from the president continued when it became really the rule of the White House and the very tough press secretary, Stephen Early, that photographs of him in the wheelchair were not permitted, that photographs of him being lifted into a car or using his braces were not per permitted. And by then, photographers who violated that, uh, that code could have their film ripped out of the camera. Uh, but often, colleague photographers would purposely jostle a photographer who was trying to take a revealing picture. It shows that there was a connection between Roosevelt and the press that was kind of unique. We learned in our first hour from you that Adams, Lincoln, and Wilson all cracked down on the press during times of war. When World War II broke out, what was the Roosevelt administration's approach to the press? Well, first of all, he, he enjoyed hiding a little bit. Um, he went to uh, a conference with, uh, with Winston Churchill in Canada, but he didn't tell the press he was going. He said he was going on a vacation, and he, his son reported that he really loved the idea that he fooled them. And uh, Winston Churchill arrived to this conference with his own press contingent, so the American press was mightily annoyed by that. Um, he also uh, exercised a loose-lips, sink-ships policy once the war began. He reduced the number of press conferences he had hosted, and by the way, worth noting that no president in American history met the press as often as FDR. He held 998 press conferences over 12 years. And those who claimed that he was diminished to a point where he could no longer lead by the end of his life should look at his last press conference a day before he died and see how he manipulated the press, how he didn't allow a guest uh, the president of the Philippines, to say a word, how he reminded everybody everything's off the record and said, I'll see you back in Washington. It, his, we have a transcript for every one of his 998 press conferences, and he was a master of that form uh, two days a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. And um, access plus withholding access was the perfect formula for control, as it turned out. Well, of course, he was famous for those fireside chats. We're going to listen yeah. to just a little bit, 30 seconds or so of one from 1939, and then talk about how he used those. You, the people of this country, are receiving news through your radios and your newspapers at every hour of the day. You are, I believe, the most enlightened and the best informed people in all the world at this moment. You are subjected to no censorship of news, 
And I want to add that your government has no information which it withholds or which it has any thought of withholding from you. What's your reaction to that big statement, not withholding anything from you? Well, it was generally true up to that point. He answered questions. They were off the record, but often if he made news at those news conferences, he would relent and put things back on the record um, or issue a mimeograph news release with a statement of the day to conform with the news he had made. Um, the fireside chats were amazing. He assumed a conversational tone and New Deal activists who traveled the country to, you know, officially to measure the impact of recovery programs all took note of the fact that Americans throughout the rural areas of the country thought of Roosevelt as a kind of friend who entered their parlors every so often and whose warm voice uh, was perfectly uh, textured to the radio microphone. He didn't bray. He didn't shout. He didn't speechify. He talked the way Jack Benny talked on the radio, the way Bob Hope talked on the radio, the way the geniuses of this new medium uh, conversed. And uh, they considered him a family friend. They laughed with him. They, uh, uh, they cried with him uh, during the awful news of World War II. They prayed with him when he wrote a prayer uh, for the D-Day invasion force and, and recited it. And his voice was everywhere. What's remarkable is he did 998 press conferences, but he only did 28 fireside chats. And yet people could swear that he was always on the radio always part of their lives, and part of it was because he also did speeches on the radio. But there was a great story, my favorite, I think it may be my favorite story in the book. It's a recollection by Saul Bellow, who was then working for the government in a writer's project. Uh, of course, later, would go on to win the Nobel Prize in literature. And he remembered being on a big avenue in Chicago as a young man, and there was just a terrible traffic jam during a fireside chat, and he couldn't stand the heat, it was the summer. Uh, even with the windows down. So he decided he was going to get out and walk the length of this boulevard. But every place he went in succession, every car window was rolled down and every radio was tuned to President Roosevelt. So as he said, walking a mile along this promenade, he kept Roosevelt with him the whole time and the voice never stopped um, dominating the space that he was traversing. If FDR uh, used radio to his advantage, John Kennedy, you write about television, uh, that he all but weaponized the medium that helped elect him. He did. And I think um, the big experiment that propelled him into using television that way were the, uh, the, the uh, Nixon-Kennedy presidential debates, which uh, from the moment they began gave an advantage to Kennedy not just because of what he said, but the way he said it and the way he looked. Um, he used great makeup and Nixon used bad makeup. And Nixon was emaciated and Kennedy was robust. Those who listened on radio thought Nixon won, but those who watched on television believed Kennedy had won by a wide margin. Although there was no polling, that was the consensus. So once he became president, he used the same team of makeup artists and set designers um, who had collaborated on the background for that first triumphant political debate to design a place for him to hold press conferences. Now, Eisenhower had introduced 
the live press conferences, but he was clearly annoyed by having to do it. And he did it in the old executive office building, which was cavernous. And he sat and stood at a desk and he said, we'll see if this works out. They fought with reporters. It was actually surprisingly not successful, even though he had a brilliant press secretary in James Haggerty. So the Kennedy set was the new State Department auditorium, which had raked theater-style seating, uh, professional lighting. They installed a blue background. They built a famous podium with the presidential seal. Uh, They had a place in the back for cameras. And indeed, they had 400 people for those press conferences. They needed the space to accommodate them, and they simply darkened the lights on the outer reaches where people weren't seated, so it always looked packed. The other innovations were um, that he was introduced, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. That had never happened before. With FDR, the doors flew open and reporters filed into the Oval Office and stood in front of his his desk. Um, Kennedy um, was brilliant at the the forum. I listened to all of his press conferences again, watched them, uh, courtesy of the Kennedy Library archives, and they were as masterful as I remembered them uh, from my after-school viewing in junior high school. Uh, he was informative. He took responsibility uh, for mistakes. Uh, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan, he famously said after the Bay of Pigs invasion failed uh, in Cuba. Um, he was funny. Uh, he was witty. Uh, and again, I, I mentioned May Craig earlier, uh, by this time, May Craig was an elderly uh, reporter, and she wore a flower pot hats uh, to distinguish her. Kennedy could always find her. And when things were getting a little tedious, he would call on her, and she would inevitably ask a question that was almost as funny as the answer. She had a way of doing her questions that got people giggling. Maybe it was a little patronizing, but the giggles were there. And then he would give a witty answer. Um, these became so popular in their own right as cultural phenomena that uh, they they inspired a, a record album. Does anybody remember what a record, a record album is? By a comedian named Vaughn Meter, who did an uncanny impression of President Kennedy, or as JFK said, of Teddy Kennedy. It was more like Teddy. And they, it became a big bestseller. And uh, uh, they were just theatrical events. The, the press was dubious at first. They didn't like the idea of the theatricality of it. But then they realized, I mean, one reporter said it was like, gave President Kennedy to practically uh, do the equivalent of making love in Carnegie Hall. Um, But then they realized they were getting called on and they were getting airtime and they were growing famous themselves. So they signed on. They liked this after all. We're going to just play a brief clip from one of them so people can get a sense of it. And uh, we don't have too much more time to talk about Kennedy, but let's listen to how he sounded. President, President, the Democratic platform in which you ran for election promises to work for equal rights for women, including equal pay, to wipe out job opportunity discriminations. Now, you have made efforts on behalf of others. What have you done for the women according to the promises of the platform? Well, I'm sure we haven't done enough, and, uh... I must 
say I am a, a strong believer in equal pay uh, for equal work, and uh, I think that uh, uh, we ought to uh, do better than we're doing, and I'm glad that you reminded me of it, Miss Craig. <laughs> I'll just let that stand because I wanted to ask you about the, and you referenced this before, the one, th one aspect of the relationship with the Kennedy and the press is that they were willing to cover up his uh, medical issues, his also uh, reliance on um, medications to deal with some of those medical issues, and importantly, for want of a better word, his philandering. Why were they willing to do that? Well, it was the last gasp of the old boy network. Uh, Kennedy had been a journalist uh, after World War II. He um, was a writer of sorts. I mean, uh, we can debate whether he wrote the book for which you won the Pulitzer Prize or whether he just supervised its production. But um, he was a charmer and he had lifelong friends in journalism, Ben Bradley and, and, and others. He played golf with reporters and gave them scoops. And uh, he, he was very clever about keeping his friends in his orbit, giving them stories, giving them exclusive, giving them tips. So they were willing to overlook what the Old Boys Network overlooked at that time. Uh, and that, you know, the prevailing idea that a, the president's private life is off limits if it doesn't interfere with his public life was still prevalent. And years later, the, the men who had turned the other way defended that uh, practice because, as they insisted, it didn't interfere with his conduct of, of the government. And in the close to his chapter, you, you recognize the fact that television also canonized John F. Kennedy in his death. Um, what were you thinking about as you wrote that? I was thinking about both my, my longtime studies of the Lincoln assassination and how the images of his funeral and his assassination and his deathbed all contrived, uh, elevated him into sort of a secular sainthood. The same can be said about uh, President Kennedy's funeral, um, this elaborate affair in which his body was taken on the caisson that had carried Abraham Lincoln uh, to Arlington for burial, the sight on live TV of his little boy saluting his coffin of, of Jackie Kennedy and his brothers and the leaders of the world walking slowly across Arlington Bridge. No one who saw that will ever forget it. And um, uh, it's seared into the national memory and made people forget the mixed uh, uh, successes and failures of the administration and just fall in love anew and, and permanently with, with John Kennedy. The chapter in your book on his successor, Lyndon Johnson, is important because of the Vietnam War. But we don't have enough time to talk about it, so I hope we'll in interest people in reading it in the book. Uh, moving on to Richard Nixon, let's start with a piece of video, and then we'll talk about that. This is from 1962. You've had an opportunity to, uh, to attack me, and I think I've given as good as I've taken. I leave you gentlemen now, <laughs> and uh, you will now write it, you will interpret it, that's your right. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. And I hope that what I have said today will at least make television, radio, the press recognize 
that they have a right and a responsibility that if they're against a candidate, give him the shaft. But also recognize if they give him the shaft, put one lonely reporter on the campaign who will report what the candidate says now and then. Throughout his career, there was antipathy between Richard Nixon and the press. What was the source of it? Well, he always believed that he got the shaft, as he so charmingly put it. From the days he was a crusading anti-communist congressman and senator, he deserved, He felt he deserved uh, lionization for his uh, prosecution of Alger Hiss, his uh, intense attacks on political opponents like Jerry Voorhees and Helen Gahagan Douglas. And he never got it because the press didn't like his tactics and didn't like his anger. And uh, it persisted into that moment when he was conceding the 1962 comeback bid for governor of California. But um, I will say that although he seems to have been saying, he did say it was his last press conference, he, he, uh, he famously did have many, many press conferences after that. And most of them were brittle uh, tense affairs because he did not like press scrutiny. And by the way, if there was really a shaft involved uh, in coverage of Richard Nixon, he would end up giving uh, journalists the shaft when he became president and do more than any president uh, to change the relationship and the accepted areas of coverage of a president of the United States. How so? Well, I think the the definitive uh, thing was the, uh, the two definitive things were sending Vice President Spiro Agnew to rail against uh, negative uh, nabobs of negativity with his alliter- alliterative fuming against uh, television criticism, talking heads, uh, television stations. That really chilled the press. They did not like it. They didn't like Agnew. They reveled in his subsequent downfall, and they blame Nixon. Um, the, the second thing, of course, and I'm not even going to deal with Watergate yet, the second thing was the White House enemies list. Uh, Nixon kept a list, really an absurdly long list of people who he believed is, should be everything from uh, taken off social lists to, to investigated, uh, and it included many, many uh, reporters of consequence, uh, Mary McGrory and uh, Marvin, Marvin and Bernard Kalb and uh, others familiar uh, to the television world. There's a great story about uh, Mary McGrory. Somebody came up to her and said, Mary, you made the enemies list. Uh, they say in the enemies list that you write an anti-Nixon column every day. And she said, that's absolutely not true, with a pause. She said, I only write three days a week. So reporters actually took it as a badge of honor, but they never trusted Richard Nixon again. And what followed um, the uh, uh, Nixon trying to prevent publication of the Pentagon Papers, losing in the Supreme Court, affirming the freedom of the press, uh, really quite consequentially. And then, of course, the Watergate cover-up, in which he said probably very few true things to the press in the final year and a half of his presidency. By the time Watergate broke, uh, was the relationship with the, the, the press corps at large just so fractured uh, that there was no reservoir of goodwill toward him? Is that fair to say? A, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. There was no, there was no sympathy for Richard Nixon. He was too dark a figure. He was too 
calculating a figure. He was too aggressive and secretive a figure. Watergate was the latest and greatest manifestation of a general hostility against societal norms. And um, uh, the, the, once the press smelled blood, uh, they never relented on Watergate, justly so, because he tried to destroy uh, the norms of the election process clumsily, defensively. And then, of course, the cover-up was worse than the crime. Um, and uh, by the way, Nixon also had, just to point out, it's always good to have a press secretary. I, my view is I'm a former political press secretary, and it's a hard job because you have to tell the truth to the press, keep the press informed, keep the uh, keep your loyalty to the candidate or the elected official, and stay informed by the candidate. Uh, so you have to, if you leak, you have to leak very, very carefully. Um, President Nixon had Ron Ziegler as a, uh, a press secretary who was uh, not trusted by the press and really not even liked by the president. Um, his spin doctors, his operatives, his communications people like Pat Buchanan were really crafting the dark strategy of his attacks on the media. Um, he was really the first president to make media attacks uh, a, an integral part of his his platform and his daily method of operation. And the press were never going to be interested in finding his corner, much less being in his corner after that. Your book is, is the story not just of the presidents, but also of the changing press corps and changing technology that enabled them to do their work. What was the outcome of the Nixon administration on the press corps that covered the president? Well, the good outcome is he uh, for them is uh, the, the New York Daily News had helped fundraise to build a pool for Franklin Roosevelt saying that he needed it for physical therapy, which is kind of close to saying he, he needed to exercise his legs. Uh, and uh, Roosevelt didn't like the idea that they're doing that, but he built the pool and uh, he invited reporters to use the pool, also clever. Um, Richard Nixon covered up the pool, and uh, I, I use the word cover up because that's what it was, and you know it seemed to be his MO, uh, covering up. And um, what he did is he gave the press a theater-style setting for daily briefings. And it really changed the uh, operation of the White House press corps, moving them out of closer proximity to the Oval Office, which was one of the reasons he did that, but also giving them a state-of-the-art facility with television broadcast booths that allowed more television than ever to be part of the daily coverage of the White House and, and gave them, and also created a briefing room, which we know all too well today. Think when we see those briefings, that they're standing over the, the old swimming pool that Franklin Roosevelt used to swim in for rehabilitation, and that I'll give you an image that you can't forget, that Lyndon Johnson used to take reporters in for nude swimming. Um, uh, you know, Look Magazine reporters, that's quite a way of looking, um, and others. So Nixon, Nixon ended swimming uh, and replaced it with, with a pool with a cover I know that you spoke to President Bill Clinton from your notes and also Newt Gingrich, uh, who uh, they famously squared off during the Clinton presidency. Uh, but I, I'm just going to ask one question to kind of capture the flavor of the Clinton years. Hillary Clinton famously complained regularly of a vast right-wing conspiracy uh, against the president and herself. Uh, you're, in the book, you ask, was he justifiably aggrieved 
or irrationally self-pitying. Did you come to a conclusion? Um, well, my own conclusion is that he was um, unjustly covered. I mean, the, the, the residue of the aggressive coverage of Nixon, the ability of the press to remove a president, the uh, ability of two journalists to become folk heroes. And uh, as I say in the book, what journalist, what male journalist doesn't want to be played in the movies by, uh, by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman? Uh, so the gotcha culture really reached its apogee in the Clinton presidency. So I think he was a bit self-pitying, but I think he was enormously aggrieved. And I have to say, I'm on record as uh, my voice was the last time I visited Little Rock. I have a little voice segment in the uh, the Clinton library in the video display where I, I think I say only one thing. I say there really was a vast right-wing conspiracy. Clinton suffered the slings and arrows of a very aggressive uh, and burgeoning right-wing radio um, uh, culture. Uh, Rush Limbaugh and others who said vile personal things about him and his family. And also... Uh, just a culture of investigating things that should not have been investigated. Um, and I do, I hope, make that point in the book about uh, uh, the tragedy of Vince Foster, the folly of uh, Whitewater and Travelgate. I think they were all uh, digressions and um, uh, just enormous disservice to the American public. That wasn't on the press. That was on the Ken Starr in permanent investigative wing, I think. George W. Bush, uh, to talk about him, I'm actually going to show a clip from his last press conference in 2009 uh, where he talks about his relationship with the press, and then we'll add more context to that story. Let's listen. And I see a lot of uh, faces that travel with me around the world and to places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Africa. Uh, I see um, uh, some new faces, uh, which goes to show there's some turnover in this business. Uh, through it all, it's been, uh, I, I have um, respected you. Um, sometimes didn't like the stories that you wrote or reported on. Sometimes you um, misunderestimated me. Uh, but uh, always the relationship I have felt has been professional, and uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate, um, I do appreciate working with you. My friends say, what is it like to deal with the press car? I said, these are just people that are trying to do the best they possibly can. Well, Howard Holzer, there's a president reflecting on his eight years in office, but you wrote about it. What was it like going through it for the president? Well, I think... Um there was a, an ingenious structure in the, in the communications operation of the Bush White House, very much modeled after the Reagan uh, uh, system, which is a, a kind of a good cop, bad cop setup, where the, uh, the communications aides were a great deal more negative and aggressive than the president, and uh, in which the president was kept on, relentlessly on, message for photo ops, for chats, for rope lines, and uh, even for press conferences. And um, uh, President Bush is, is and was a very friendly man and a charming 
man, and um, uh, I think he made some bad public relations mistakes. Uh, the, the, the flight over Hurricane Katrina, uh, where he didn't land, but he sort of hovered, just sent a terrible signal to Americans that he was out of it. And I think he, I don't think he was out of it, but again, by this point, television coverage was aggressively uh, liberal or conservative, and they looked for gotcha moments at every opportunity. And, uh, you know, probably most famously, the the uh, dramatic landing on the USS Abraham Lincoln uh, with the mission accomplished sign in the background, you know, months, years before the mission was accomplished. And I think that was also a mistake. On the other hand, he gave press nicknames and... Uh, uh, some of them thought it was cute and, and liked it, and others thought it was sort of a subtle control mechanism. And um, uh, so I think I think he did respect the professionalism of the press. And I liked his little misunderestimated joke there because, of course, he was quite famous for malaprops, uh, which the press loved, loved to report. Well, a theme throughout our conversations has been how White House's presidents become restrictive during times of war. After 9-11 and when he began the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, what was their stance towards the media who were trying to cover these stories? Well, the stance was totally unlike Franklin Roosevelt's, who, uh, I mean, if you think about FDR uh, and his uh, propaganda arm during World War II organized the great film directors of the day, John Huston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens and others to go and film the war so that America had the record of the tribulations and the battles. And of course, war correspondents were at the front reporting back on the blood and the gore and the, and the agony and the injuries. Uh, it was all covered from the beginning and reported home. And, and then Lyndon Johnson, for all of his um, you know, insane d- demand of c- to control every message, uh, did allow the press to cover Vietnam. And of course, famously, when Walter Cronkite raised questions about the war, LBJ said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. And it was the beginning of his downfall. But he did allow the press to cover the war. Uh, The Bush administration did not allow embedded cameras into the the wars against terrorism, as they were called. Uh, we, We barely were able to see coffin upon coffin, flag draped uh, uh, as they were, being brought back almost on assembly lines like baggage. They were only occasionally glimpsed and uh, unloaded from, from aircraft because they did not want stories like that to upset the American people, upset the electorate. Rather, they showed pinpoint bombing, which is sort of like watching a video game. Uh, and... Uh, so I think that that was an, a major change, and I think that that's, that's really the culture of war coverage right now, which is don't let them in. Don't let them cover. What about the administration's pursuit of leaks? Well, the Bush administration and the Reagan administration were very aggressive in cracking down on leaks, uh, using you know, lie detectors and uh, trying to find the source of leaks, and of course, by this time there's a there's a Patriot Act that uh, forbids the uh, the use of information that might give aid and comfort to terrorists and terrorist organizations. So there is a new crackdown. There is a new kind of informal censorship um, 
that prevailed through the Obama years. So uh, speaking of President Obama, I'd like to do the same thing with him, which is listen to him talking about his approach to information and then talk with you about his record. This is from 2010, and it's a YouTube interview. One of the top questions in the government reform category was Warren Hunter in Brooklyn, who said, how do you expect people in this country to trust you when you've repeatedly broken promises that were made on the campaign trail, most recently the promise to have a transparent health care debate? Well, I, I guess, first of all, I would say that we have been certified by independent groups as the most transparent White House in history. It's important to understand. We are the first White House since the founding of the Republic to list every visitor that comes into the White House uh, online so that you can look it up. Uh, people know more about the inner workings of this White House, the meetings we have. Uh, we've excluded lobbyists from boards and commissions, uh, but we also report on any lobbyist who meets with anybody who's part of our, uh, part of our administration. So we've actually followed through on a lot of the commitments that we've made, and so Warren's uh, mistaken in terms of how he uh, characterized it. Well, there's the president talking about it, but you write in the book that he earns a place among John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, and Woodrow Wilson as the mo one of the most aggressive presidents in blocking press scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, um, he does make a valid point about uh, listing appointments uh, to his credit, but he also had the most battles against freedom of information requests for detailed information about those discussions or those records. Uh, he limited his interaction with the press. And, uh, you know, he was the president who was there at the creation of the real phenomenon of the Internet explosion and the web. Um, he created a White House website. And uh, the information that was often put out to the press and the public was on the official White House website. I have instances of reporters asking to cover something and, or to question the president, they were directed to the website, which is kind of an affront to working journalists. So I think um, also there was, a, a from the Obama administration, very aggressive uh, investigations of journalists. And the two uh, best known ones, or I think the most uh, consequential ones, unfortunately have very similar names, uh, James Rosen and James, James Rosen and James Risen, one from Fox News and one uh, a print journalist, both of whom uh, were wiretapped. In the case of the Fox News reporter, his family's phones were wiretapped, all to find the sources of leaked material. And um, you know whether you agree or not that America was in the same kind of peril uh, for its very survival as it was during the Civil War. I think you have to acknowledge that Barack Obama was a president who um, who did crack down on press accessibility and uh, uh, coverage. And uh, if you look at the rankings that organizations, research organizations did at the end of his presidency, I think they come down on the side that he was not transparent, except in the sense that he argues he was. As with Bill Clinton, you describe how the Obamas uh, went around the press and went to communications media to tell their own story. Would you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, he, Barack Obama uh, was the first Twitter president, and uh, I'm sure to Donald Trump's chagrin, he still has more Twitter followers, I think, than anyone in the world, or at least except for one or two entertainers. 
uh, enormous numbers, you know, tens and tens of millions of followers. So the White House website, the Twitter account, Instagram, Flickr, all of the things that the Obama team uh, originated. They had the first uh, uh, office of digital media of any White House, and they were masters at the craft. And, of course, they were abetted by a president who was a, just an enormously gifted, natural communicator, both as an orator in public places and as a one-on-one or one-on-screen communicator. So the, the, the combination of talent and technology was enormous. And um, uh, he is really the first Internet president and took full advantage of, in the best of ways, the, the, the most modern communications technology at his disposal. Of course, the press by this time was no longer just the press. Media spans all sorts of uh, types of communication uh, uh, from talk radio to blogosphere uh, to Facebook and uh, social media. How did all that change the relationship between the consuming public and the president? Well, I think it's rendered some of the press more timid uh, and less... Uh, less uh, prepared to be aggressive uh, with presidential questioning. I sort of bemoan the level of, uh, of questioning at presidential press conferences these days. I think that they're a, sort of a, on a simple level, gotcha questions, and the follow-ups usually have no relation to the original question, but they're not probing. They're not, uh, they're not uh, deep. They're of, of very... Uh, modern moment, you know, immediate moment. And um, I think that the, the, the competition among media is probably more important now to, to White House correspondents than the healthy con- antipathy between the presidents and the press. I think they're fighting each other. They're fighting their platforms as much as they're doing just battle with the president and giving uh, the president an opportunity to really uh, explicate on his policies. The uh, president is a constant presence in our lives this day, if perhaps uh, even if we don't wish him to be so, uh, because of all of this various kinds of communication. What has that done for the president's ability to govern versus earlier presidents who could control uh, when and how often they were seen? I think President Trump controls how often his messages get out. It's basically many, many times a day. And here's another criticism of the press, if I may. By When President Trump tweets early in the morning, as he does almost daily, the news cycle immediately bends to his latest um, issue, idea, rant, complaint, uh, attack. And half of the day's news cycle is devoted to rehashing his tweet and analyzing it, and in the case of talking heads, pushing back against it on some that works. I think this is nothing short of genius on the part of of Trump. Um, Obama may have been the first Twitter president, but Trump is a, a president of such mastery of Twitter that he ranks, I think, with uh, FDR and radio and JFK and television as the three most uh, technologically savvy presidents. He has bent the news cycle 
I won't say to his will, but I will say to his whim. Well, let's, we have a clip of him from his very first solo press conference of February 17th, 2017. We'll watch that and talk some more about him. I'm actually having a very good time, okay? But they'll take this news conference. Don't forget, that's the way I won. Remember, I used to give you a news conference every time I made a speech, which was like every day. Okay? No, that's how I won. I won with news conference and probably speeches. I certainly didn't win by people listening to you people. That's for sure. But I'm having a good time. Tomorrow they will say, Donald Trump rants and raves at the press. I'm not ranting and raving. I'm just telling you. You know, you're dishonest people. The public doesn't believe you people anymore. Now, maybe I had something to do with that. I don't know. But they don't believe you. If you were straight and, and really told it like it is, as Howard Cosell used to say, right? Of course, he had some questions also. But if you were straight, I would be your biggest booster. I would be your biggest fan in the world, including bad stories about me. Criticism of the press that has continued throughout his three and a half years so far in the White House. Uh, what, what do you hear in what he's saying to them? Well, it's very, it's, it's very hard to draw, you know, it, this, the sentences are so incoherent sometimes and the, the diversion so um, odd that it's hard to, um, uh, to, to really take anything from it and make any sense of it. But I think one of the things he's saying that's rather sad is, if only you liked me, I would like you. Um, it's sort of something out of the K-mutiny. Humphrey Bogart says, why don't you like me more than I would be nicer to you? But remember that President Trump in his very first, uh, his very first press activity as president was going uh, to, the, uh, to the CIA and attacking the press for saying that he criticized the CIA, which he had done during the campaign. And at that very moment, his first press secretary, Sean Spicer, had been instructed not to talk about policy uh, initiatives, but to to go off on this toot that lasted a couple of weeks, uh, insisting that the inaugural crowd had been bigger than Barack Obama's. I, I'm not going to play armchair psychiatrist and, and try to understand what that was all about. But Spicer later said he doesn't know why Trump fixated on it. He was ordered to do it. And uh, when he didn't do it successfully enough, he was replaced by a person with no press experience Anthony Scaramucci and the rest is history, just a succession of adversarial relationships with a communications director, Kellyanne Conway, on the side uh, attacking the press while uh, uh, her husband attacks Trump. It's bizarre. It is really, it's never been like this. Um, and I think while I do say in the book um, that uh, Donald Trump's bark is worse than his bite, that clearly John Adams uh, did more to to injure freedom of the press, that Abraham Lincoln did more, that Wilson did more, and then World War II FDR did almost as much, uh, that Trump has sort of crushed down the press uh, and uh, its credibility and its pro- the professionalism that George W. Bush acknowledged. He may do long-lasting harm from which we will never recover in terms of our our faith, our dependence on, and our need for the press to ask the tough questions. One of the stories that you tell about uh, both George W. Bush and Barack Obama is how they went into every press conference having rehearsed 
to stay on message uh, and, and going out there fully prepared. President Trump uh, appreciates and enjoys his spontaneity. How do the, the two different techniques uh, impact the public's view of the president? We, we won't really know the public's view of President Trump until November or December or whenever we successfully count votes in the 2020 election, I suppose. But uh, according to the polls, his spontaneity often leads uh, Donald Trump into areas that are instantly polled as hurting him, uh, you know, whether he's talking about, um, you know, saying nasty things about women whom he says are nasty or, you know, advocating um, bleach as an internal medicine. Uh, he tends to get himself into trouble by not being prepared. But he's the seat of the pants president. He doesn't read briefing books, much less rehearse for briefings, whereas Reagan, uh, for example, um, uh, at his most fraught moment, the Iran-Contra scandal, rewrote his briefing book in longhand because that's the way he used to learn scripts in Hollywood. That's the way he would commit his lines to memory. George W. Bush, uh, uh, during the Valerie Plame affair and other events, really worked on the lines that he wanted to convey. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a message to communicate to the American people. I do think the press enjoys scraping away at the scabs that are barely covering the, the, the wounds that Trump thinks he has endured. So uh, the kind of circuses we see now are probably helping neither the press nor the president. We have about five minutes left. We've spent two hours with you, and you've spent years researching this topic of the presidents versus the press. What are the most important things that you would like readers to take away from what you've learned and the stories you've conveyed? Well, on thematic issues, I think that the most uh, successful or influential presidents, like them or dislike them, are the ones that went around the press and crafted new technologies to circumvent media coverage and speak directly to the American people. I think the second thing is that the, uh, the media landscape is ever-changing and uh, uh, it's not frozen in time that it has evolved. Uh, it was more partisan. It's become as partisan as it used to be. And there was a great middle period when... Um, uh, disinterested coverage was treasured, whether we can ever get back to that and a reliance on the so-called all the news that's fit to print, um, as Donald Trump might say, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, but I think the major message that I hope I convey is that uh, twas ever thus. This, at its best, can be a very healthy uh, adversarial relationship. It doesn't have to descend into personal insults, sexist insults, uh, racially insensitive insults. It doesn't have to include threats or mockery of disabled people. Um, and it doesn't have to include wholesale uh, personal attacks on either the president or the press. It is an adversarial relationship, but it's a healthy one at its best. We've always come back from the edge on this. After the Civil War, the Supreme Court said, that presidents could not ever have the military close down the press where the press is functioning. Uh, Woodrow Wilson discontinued um, the Committee on Public Information the day after World War I ended. 
FDR relaxed his propaganda after World War II ended. Um, I think there are extraordinary moments that we meet that sometimes upset us and the press and the president, but there is a tradition of, uh, of their going at it, these two great pillars of society, the press and the American presidency, that benefits us for the adversarial nature of the, of the relationship and that have to come back from the extreme in order for the body politic to be served and for government to thrive. Harold Holzer, a Lincoln scholar and someone who has contributed many hours of his scholarship to C-SPAN over the years. Thank you very much for two hours on your newest book. What number again was it for you? 54, or fight. (laughs) (laughs) Book number 54. It's called The Presidents Versus the Press. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.